Elias Pedersen scores! Kachuk scores! Matthew Kachuk! What a goal! You're listening to... Another chance! Great save by Markstrom! Here's Kachuk! Oh, what a save by Demko! Rintoul and Sermon. What's going on? How's your Thursday? Hope you're off to a great start. We're going to make your day better. That's what we do. It's why we're here. 650, 650, or 960, 960 to get in on the conversation. And we've got a couple of conversation starters for you here as training camp start around the National Hockey League, at least the on-ice portion today, Jamie. Let's go. Players are on the ice. We're going to be getting some line combination tweets sooner rather than later here, Scotty. I'm fired up. I mean, not every player is on the ice, as you know, no, Jamie. No, but that's, no, no. That's not we're going, what we're going to talk about starting today. We'll get to that at some point because everybody thinks it's only their team that has a problem. But if you were to look around the National Hockey League right now, there are lots of problems. And depending on what team you cheer for, you probably feel like your problem is worse than others. But for the most part, and you heard this from player after player and coach after coach and GM after GM yesterday, Jamie, there's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of optimism across NHL markets. Players on the ice. Hope springs eternal beginning today. This is going to be the year. This is where we take a step. This is where we cash in. That's mainly what you've been hearing for the last 24 hours. It's that. It's about what the team can do, what the players want to accomplish and all of that. But it's also, Scotty, a huge part of that excitement is about their feeling of normalcy or at least something close to normalcy. Regular media sessions, you know, fans are going to be in the building. So it's the two things. You're right. It's always hope springs eternal time. Hey, we can do it. We can make the playoffs. Then you have the added bonus, the added factor this year of people just so excited to get back to something close to normal. Yeah, depending on where you are, it's going to look a lot more normal than not. In Alberta, for example, full capacity, despite some urging from doctors maybe not to go that way, but that's how they're proceeding right now. Got to be fully vaxxed or produce the negative COVID rapid test within, I believe, 72 hours, or is it 48? I'm not sure on that time frame. Bottom line, there's a mechanism in place. Toronto, I saw today, went, okay, we're adjusting rules so that we can operate half capacity at the Scotiabank Center. That's kind of where they're going right now in BC, but yes, closer to normal. And maybe the indication that we're closer to normal is that GMs were singing from the same hymn book yesterday. You want proof? Have a listen to Jim Benning, then Brad Treliving. I'll tee up each of these, but not surprisingly, it's an obvious question on day one of training camp, even though teams haven't hit the ice yet. Jim Benning was asked yesterday, what are your expectations for this season? But, you know, our goal this year is, is to make the playoffs. And then, you know, once you make the playoffs, anything can happen. So uh, it was a tough season last year, but um, I'm really looking forward to, you know, see how our group gels over the course of the season and, and you know, see where we end up here at the end. Want to make the playoffs? Anything can happen. I think I've heard that before. In fact, I think I heard it <laughs> elsewhere yesterday. I'm pretty sure I heard the same thing in Calgary. Have a listen to Brad for living. Oh, I don't know about last year expectations being off. I thought our team, you know, underperformed last year. Um, last year's last year. We're on to this year now. Um, you know, the expectation is it is every year is you, you, you ex say expect you want to be a playoff team. You know, first step of, of, of accomplishing what you want to accomplish, you've got to be a playoff team. And once you get to, to the playoffs, then you address it. And, and deal with that, and anything can happen once you get into the dance. But I think the goal for this team, as it is every year, is um, we want to be a playoff team. We've got to earn that right, 
over 82 games uh, to be a playoff team, but that's that's certainly the goal and the expectation of this team coming into camp. Same thing being said in Calgary, and that's not surprising. We live in Canada. There is an expectation everywhere but Ottawa to be a playoff team this year. And in some cases, Toronto, Edmonton, it's be a playoff team and do something. But in Calgary and Vancouver, they're not talking like that yet. The general managers, Jamie, have laid it out for their fan bases, though, and we say this all the time. When your GM goes on record, that's where you can hold your management accountable. Okay, you said it. We've got it on record. We're holding you to that. And in both instances, I don't think anyone's surprised that that's the messaging from Jim Benning or Brad Trey Living, right? We've talked a lot in recent weeks, Scotty, about the pressure that exists in both of these markets, pressure from fans, pressure from ownership. Everyone knows that the goal is the playoff, that that's the standard these teams are expected to reach this year. So not a surprise, but it was striking how similar the messaging was from both of them, right? Right down to saying, hey, get in and anything can happen. Two terribly disappointing seasons. That's what these teams are coming out of. And we're talking about two pressure-packed markets. Two GMs who yesterday admitted, as you just said, Jamie, they know what must be delivered. And then ownership gets to decide after that whether there are consequences if you fall short. It's where sports is different than a lot of our different jaws. We all have metrics that we are evaluated on. But in sports, there's a scoreboard. And with a general manager like Jim Benning or Brad Treliving, with where they're at in their tenure and where they're at with their hockey teams, this is a check or an X type category. Do you make the playoffs? Yes or no. That's where we're evaluating you. And if you don't get that job accomplished, now we have to have a more difficult conversation about what we're doing moving forward. Yeah, that's exactly it, right? As you said, it's coming from ownership, and there's very, very clear metrics, if you want to call that, very clear standard that needs to be met for both of these teams. And depending on how you looked at these teams last year, basically depends on how disappointing you thought last year was. And I know everybody wants to put those years behind them, but that's part of the reason that each general manager came out at the end of last season and said what he was going to do. Now, one of them was able to accomplish what he said he was going to do. The other, not so much. And, Jamie, that's what makes the way that these two franchises are going to attempt to get into the playoffs and get to that stated goal very interesting. Jim Benning said, we're going to be aggressive. And whether you like the moves or not, he stayed true to his word. He made things happen. He took some very big risks this NHL offseason. And Jim Benning, he believes that those changes are going to pay off. He said so yesterday. Um, bringing OEL into the group. He's a veteran player, and he's already, you know, his presence is felt in the room. I talked to Bo about it that the other day, and I think, you know, he's going to be a good mentor for Petey when he gets in here. So, you know, I like the, this, you know, we got younger, faster, more skilled. And, you know, the, the, the game that, you know, we like to play or Travis likes to play is an exciting offensive game. But I, I believe we've signed some guys too that can help out in the defensive end too. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, where all these guys fit in at camp and, you know, who's going to fit with who, who's going to play with who. And uh, so that part of it's all exciting. Fair to say, Jamie, that Oliver ekman Larson, though he might not have the biggest impact, he's the face of the offseason change in Vancouver? 
he is because of the risk associated with the move, right? Everybody looks at another big addition like Connor Garland as a pretty safe move, okay? That guy's going to come in. You like the contract that they signed him to. He's going to be very effective and make a big difference in your top six. With Oliver ekman Larson. there's a lot more questions. So there's upside there, but there's a tremendous amount of risk as well. So, yes, he is the face of what happened with this franchise in the offseason. There's a lot of different players expected to provide an impact on the Canucks roster this year. Change was the order of the day for the Canucks. It was supposed to be for the Calgary Flames. And while from a numbers point of view, there might be a different, a whole, well, not a whole bunch, but Brad for Living said yesterday as many as seven or eight new players on the roster, they didn't come in the exact same spots. Brad for Living, not surprisingly, at his press conference and when he was talking to Pat Steinberg on 960 yesterday, He was asked to address the fact that the change he himself called for publicly didn't actually happen. Here's what he said. As far as big moves, um, you know, we talked a lot at the end of the year when we we underachieved and looking at at trying to to possibly change our team. Uh, You can't just make a change. We certainly could make changes. We could move people out of town for very small returns. And 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 to me, you, you don't... You don't make a change just to stand up at a press conference and say, look, at, we made a change. Mm-hmm. Um, we look at every possible way to help our team become better. Um, and, you know, the big move, if you would, wasn't available to us and did, or, or didn't make any sense to do that, um, just to say that we, we made a move. Do I have to find out what kind of phone Brad for Living has now? Like, I've been wondering about <laughs> Daryl Siders. Do I now have to find out what kind of phone Brad has? Or what network he's on anyways, yeah. (laughs) But he talked about the lack of change. Hey, we're not going to make a change that isn't pragmatic for our hockey team just to say we made a change, even though I came out and said we got to make a change. We tried to find deals. We couldn't find deals that made sense to us. Now, there are some that think some of the deals Jim Benning struck, whether they be in free agency or the Oliver ekman Larson deal, don't make sense for the hockey team but he made them anyway. And that's why it makes it very interesting that these two teams that fell well short of expectation last year are going to try to make good this time around, Jamie, are taking different paths. One, rife with change. The other, not so much, at least as the season begins. And as Living pointed out yesterday, hey, we're always going to try to improve the team. We can make change throughout the course of the season. But right now it's, okay, mainly the same core as we had, minus Mark Giordano, and we're going to give Daryl Sutter a full run at this, and we think that's what's going to ultimately make the difference. Yeah, and there are, you know, there are new faces in Calgary, right? You know, first and foremost, Blake Coleman, some other guys farther down the roster. We've talked a lot about how they went out and acquired a lot of, you know, Daryl Sutter type players. You look at Nikita Zadorov, Trevor Lewis, Brad Richardson, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So they did make additions, but it never felt, you know, even Coleman, okay, that that's good, but he's more of a role player, right? You're not expecting him to come in and really reshape the core of this team. And you know, to be fair, look, what Bradshaw Living said in that clip, he's exactly right. You don't make a move just for the sake of making a move, right? You don't move a player for pennies on the dollar just so you can say you moved that player. But it's still understandably frustrating, I think, for Flames fans that an expectation was set of big changes, and then it didn't come to fruition. So I completely understand what Bradshaw Living is saying, but I also get why people would look at the offseason and say, okay, that's pretty underwhelming. 
And that's how a lot of Flames fans have approached it. And it hasn't been, don't worry, this will be fine in Daryl we trust. There is some unrest in that fan base. There's unrest in Vancouver as well. And interestingly enough, just from a symbolic standpoint, Jamie, there are reasons that it looks like this today. It's day one of camp. The Canucks are hitting the ice. The Flames are hitting the ice. I'm not sure if you took a look at how those groups shape up for the respective franchises. In Vancouver, it's veterans mixed in with players auditioning, guys expected to be on the AHL roster. Some of that is due to a lack of center ice depth in Vancouver. Brandon Sutter's not there. We know Elias Pettersson's not there. So they've got that traditional training camp mix of vets and younger players or players bound for the AHL. In Calgary, they did the exact opposite. It was... Here are all the vets, and here are the guys who are supposed to be on the team this year. They're going to be in one group. And the other groups, they're going to be up with the other guys. And then we know that can change, but that's the tone that's being set from day one. Right, and in in Vancouver, I think we expect to see a lot more kind of experimentation from Travis Green during training camp, trying out different guys, seeing, okay, we've got these new players in town. Where do they fit best? You have less of that dynamic in Calgary because, again, you know, even a lot of the players they did bring in are guys that Daryl Sutter is familiar with from previous stops in his NHL career. Vancouver, for example, today, it's not Horvat centering Niels Hoaglander and Brock Besser, a line combination we saw at times last year. No, Horvat's with Zach McEwen and Tanner Pearson today, a guy he's played with a lot. It's Nick Patan between those wingers that I just mentioned. I'm not going to run down all of the lines right now, but I do want to throw this out to our listenership on both sides of the Rockies, 960-960 or 650-650. They changed the coach, so the messaging will change, the training camp will feel different, but they didn't change the nucleus in Calgary. They think their players underperformed, and they can get more out of them this season. They expect to be in the playoffs. Vancouver, as we outline, lots of change. They think that will get them to the playoffs. We want our listeners to tell us this today. Which team do you consider a better bet to make the playoffs? We know they can both get in. Which team do you say, I have more confidence that this team makes the playoffs this season than that team? Is it the team that made a bunch of change and is hoping a bunch of risk paid off? Is it the team that said, we know who we are, we didn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater here, and we believe this coach will get more out of this group? Which of those teams, Jamie, is better positioned to be in the playoffs come uh, April? So if I had to choose one, it would be the Vancouver Canucks. But it's very close, and I would lean towards the Canucks because I think there's more upside and talent overall on the roster. And, And again, that comes back to a conversation we've had a lot with the Calgary Flames, where we know they are still searching for those truly elite players in the forward group and down the middle in particular. In Vancouver, you know, once assuming that Elias Pettersson gets signed, which I think he will be in relatively short order anyways, they have that, right? So I do think there's more upside, but it's also fair to look at Vancouver's makeup on the blue line and say, well, there might be more downside as well. So I'm willing to take that bet on the talent, but I do like this text that came in in the 960-960 Calgary inbox, unsigned, but they say Flames were the best defensive team under Sutter last year after he took over. Offense will be tough, but don't discount Johnny Goudreau and Matthew Kachuk in contract years to carry it. And something you said, Scotty, kind of fits with that, right? The Flames know who they are. They have a very, very clear sense of their identity, and with Daryl Sutter coaching Jacob Markstrom and Nett, and some of the players and additions that they've made, to the Texter's point, yeah, you like the Flames' ability to be a really solid defensive team. So they should have that at the very least to fall back on. That's why it's close for me. Again, 
I'll take the bet. If I have to choose one, I'll take the bet on the extra talent that Vancouver has. But because of that identity, it's a very close call. This is why I think the compare and contrast between these two teams is a lot of fun. They're going to try to go about it two different ways. You're questioning Calgary, and it should be your question, no matter where you sit, Flames fan, not a Flames fan. Well, can this team score? Can this team score? It was 20th in scoring last year in the NHL. They didn't augment the scoring in the offseason. Everybody likes Blake Coleman. No one's expecting him to have 40 goals this year. Can this team score enough? That remains the question. Goaltending? Hey, pretty good. Vancouver, goaltending, feel very confident about that. Can this team defend enough? Can this team create a stable enough environment, or can it outscore some of its problems? Because when you look at the Canucks forward group, no matter where you're looking at it from, it looks pretty good right now. It looks a lot deeper than a lot of forward groups in this division. So are they going to outscore their problems? Are they going to be able to have the puck more and therefore limit the chances the other end? Can some of the players that were brought in in expanded roles or trying to refresh their careers get back to a place they were three, four years ago in the case of an Oliver Ekman Larson? They are completely different questions in these two cities. They really are. And in Vancouver, I would throw in as well, you know, can the power play bounce back? So can they have a little bit of an edge on special teams? Because as you laid out, you know, you know, they are going to give up goals at five on five. It seems like a situation where they're going to need to get some back on special teams. Uh, Pedro in Calgary, Texan, he says Vancouver has a better chance of bouncing back and making the playoffs. Calgary is still going to struggle to score. Their defense will struggle to defend and move the puck. They're going to rely heavily on Markstrom, who has injury history, and Vladar isn't proven as the backup. And I think that's an interesting point about the goaltending situation. Yeah, you feel really confident with Jacob Markstrom, but the proven backup isn't there in Calgary. And again, his first point there in that text, they're going to struggle to score. It's hard to look at Calgary's roster and not come to that conclusion. This one comes in from Canuckaholic. I have a ton more confidence that the Canucks will make the playoffs. The Canucks, in my mind, have a ton more depth than Calgary. I'm positive the defense will be better this year. Positive is strong. Hopeful, I think, is a better word to use when it comes to the Canucks defense. (laughs) Because while a bunch of the parts have changed, I don't think you look at that group on the blue line of Vancouver right now and go, that's a stout defensive group right now. Yep, they should be just fine. Yeah, no, there's there's major, major questions, and it could go very poorly on the blue line for Vancouver. And, you know, if you if you kind of squint, you can find reasons for optimism, you know, starting with Quinn Hughes, who I think is going to have a bounce back specifically defensively. I think he's going to have a bounce back season this year and it'll be a lot better in his own end. But, no, you can't just – you can't look at that blue line and just say, oh, yeah, it'll be fine. Like, it's a major, major question mark. This text comes in, when Daryl Sutter took over the Calgary Flames in 2003, they didn't make the playoffs. The next year, they made it to the finals. When Daryl Sutter took over the Kings in his first year, they didn't make the playoffs. The next year, you know what happened? Oh, I think he's going three for three. There's optimism from this text about the Flames. Now, when Sutter took over the Kings, they did go to the finals. They did win that year. It wasn't the next year that that all got done. It happened that exact same year. But I understand the point. We talked about the Dave Tippett effect the first year he went to Edmonton, and I outlined where Dave Tippett had been in his career. Look, when he took over the Stars, this is what happened. When he took over the Coyotes, this is what happened. Predict that Edmonton will have a very good year because that's Dave Tippett's track record. It's what happens after that and whether or not his teams hit a ceiling. To the texter's point, Daryl Sutter does have a track record of doing this. He does, absolutely. And I think it'll be interesting 
to see how he has the team playing with the benefit of a full training camp, right? And the ability to really instill exactly what he wants from them in training camp in preseason. I think that could make, and that's why I said, you know, when I, when I first answered the question, I said, I like Vancouver. I do think the range of outcomes for Vancouver is a lot bigger than the range of potential outcomes for Calgary, because I I feel very confident that Calgary is going to be a really solid defensive team. And, you know, to the texter, Pedro, who brought up Markstrom and he was injured last year and the backup situation isn't great. That's very fair. But, you know, knock on wood, if Markstrom is able to stay healthy and you have Daryl Sutter and you have that forward group and that defense, I think they're going to be a very reliable defensive team, which kind of puts a floor, a pretty high floor on how low they can go in the standings, even if offense is, you know, a major question there. That might be a good way to look at it. Hey, Vancouver, if all of these gambles hit, they might be as good as second in the division behind Vegas. Yeah. But if the gambles go the other way, maybe they're as low as, I don't know, sixth. Whereas Calgary, well, they might not have enough to get higher than third, but maybe they're good enough that they couldn't sink past fifth. I, I mean, I'm yeah, just throwing that's... numbers out there, but just as far as the range that you outlined. That's kind of how I look at it, right? One is the more very extremely high-variance team, right? And that happens when you have the way the roster is shaped in Vancouver, right, with, you know, a few of those high-end talents, but then questions elsewhere. That's the kind of thing that tends to happen, Where whereas Calgary is more solid up and down the lineup, but without the really dynamic talent to, to potentially drive them farther up the standings either. Which team is better positioned to make the playoffs as of right now? And we're assuming that Pedersen Hughes will be a part of the operation in Vancouver once the season begins. You can hit us up at 650-650 or 960-960. Plenty happening around the league. We will catch you up and we will get into it with Jeff Merrick of 32 Thoughts, the podcast next on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. We don't have to read all of the text, Jamie, but I... There are times I wish all of our listeners could see all of the texts that come in to 650, 650, or 960, 960, and we welcome your opinions. We welcome directions that you want the show to go. We're not always going to go that way, but you and I have been big advocates of everybody having a say. Absolutely. That's what it's all about here. At no point during the first segment of the show did we mention the Canucks and their continued negotiations with Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson. And I have multiple texts on the subject. Yep. And we had people texting yesterday saying, hey, why are you guys still talking about this? We know the deal. It's not a story. Move on. Well, it's still a story. It's still a story until these players are signed. Of course it is because they're so important. And yet I haven't mentioned it. And the texts continue to roll in on that matter, Jamie. It's something that we will probably touch on with Jeff Merrick. Just for a warning for anybody, because it is a big story around the <laughs> National Hockey League right now, and there are a lot of big stories around the National Hockey League. This is not one of them, but it might be one of my favorite things that I've seen in the last 24 hours. We we say this all the time. There are times where you got to be able to just laugh at yourself and lean in and have fun with it. Brandon Tanev taking his unforgettable headshot that he had with the Pittsburgh Penguins and transporting that with him to Seattle, I am here for that. I thought it was awesome that he tried to do the exact same type of face in his Kraken headshot. It's pretty great, and it's um, it's kind of a layup, too, for the Seattle Kraken social media team, right? Like, you know, throwing that out there, you're going to get a lot of love and a lot of positive reaction because it's really funny. And the look on Brandon Tanev's face is just hilarious pretty much every time you see it. Yeah, I saw a ghost. That's the line that he used, and he did it again. <laughs> but you and I both know this, Jamie. There are a lot of people that you embarrass them, and they try to roll with it at the time, but they really don't like it, so they say, 
guys, I want to shut this down a little bit. He could have done yeah. that. He's like, I'm going to a new team. That's not what I want to be known for. I want people to like me for the hockey player I am, what I contribute to this team, and I bring a lot more than just looking like I'm super scared or freaked out in my headshot. But I love the fact that he didn't do that. I love the fact that he's like, yeah, man, let's keep this thing going. Yeah, it could have been day one, you know, gets the phone call from Ron Francis. Okay, here's the thing, Ron. I uh, I want to put the ghost photo behind me. I don't want to talk about that anymore. But he didn't do that. He's having fun with it. You're right. It's good to see. There's going to be a lot of projecting and prognosticating about the Pacific Division and where teams are going to finish. And Seattle is obviously a wild card and how they're built. Are they going to be able to score enough? That defense, is it all that's cracked up to be? Pardon the pun as I roll that out there. This I do know. Opposition teams are not going to like playing Brandon Tanev as often as they are in the Pacific Division this year. Nope. He is annoying to play against, right? It's 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 a good point. Yeah, you talk about the goofy headshot, but good player on the ice. And as you say, an annoying one to play against as well. Did you see the Olympic hockey schedule was announced today? We're all hoping, fingers crossed, that COVID's in a place and it doesn't affect the NHL and it's not in a terrible spot worldwide that NHL players are going to be there. But they rolled out the tournament schedule today. Canada is in a pool with Germany, the U.S., and China. And from a TV viewing standpoint, Jamie, the times are a lot better than I expected, especially if you live on the West Coast. Yeah, I was kind of doing the, uh, I mean, I clicked through immediately to see what the schedule was like. February 12th, mark your calendar, not game one, but it's Canada versus the U.S. And I will admit, I was kind of trying to do some time zone math to figure out exactly what I would be watching these games. But yeah, it doesn't seem like it's going to be all that bad this year. No, you get up relatively early in the morning, not in the middle of the night for those Round robin games if you're on the West Coast or you're living in Alberta, and you got to stay up late one night to watch the Canada US game, but that's okay. But it's not that two or three in the morning wake up call. They'll have to stay up through the middle of the night for one of the games in the East, but other than that, they get the, the 9 a.m. Eastern puck drop. So it'll be okay for those on the other side of the country as well. That's where we find Jeff Merrick, co host of 32 Thoughts, the podcast. I can officially say that now, even though the logo hasn't been done, can't I? Oh, the logo's kind of been done. We kind of scratched one out and created a new one when we were in Chicago at the uh, the Players Tour, Scotty. So, uh, yeah, I know that all the graphics and artwork are, are not not yet done, putting the uh, the final touches on it. But, yeah, why not? 32 thoughts. Here we go. I heard Friedman reference it that way this morning and say, I'm not sure that the logo's been done, to which my first thought was, you're just changing a number. Like, all you got to do is make it no, 32 instead of 31. No. No, this is high concept here, Scotty. No, no, this is this is this is going to earn some people some corner offices here, Scott. This is not just replace the one with a two, although that was discussed. Actually, one guy had a really good, a couple of people have tweeted in ideas, and one person had it in sort of Seattle blue or Seattle teal, which looked kind of cool. The two because the the new team coming in, but there's a bunch of designs that Elliot and I have nothing to do with, <laughs> so we're just kind of. We're just kind of we're just kind of waiting at this point. But it's, oh, I know. want I wondered if you guys were going to try to find a way to incorporate every logo of every team somehow that you had to look for them in there and you could find them somehow in the new podcast. Logo. Oh wow, that's a great idea. Yeah, that sounds like that sounds way too ambitious for this podcast. Like really, like that's that's like a lot of work. I didn't get into this industry to work, Scotty. I don't know about you, but I didn't. Uh, I, didn't <laughs> I didn't get in here to actually actually do things. I got in this industry to say things like that's offside. Uh, that's a bad path, and we'll be right back. 
Now, there's some on the positive side of the ledger and some on the other, but it seems like there are stories everywhere around the NHL as players hit the ice today for training camp, yeah. Jeff. You can go to either side. You can go to maybe the biggest problem or you can go to biggest positive development. What is the biggest story in the National Hockey League today as camp's open? Uh, to me, it's the same one that it's been all summer long, and that's what's happening with Jack Eichel. And what's the end game going to be here? And the story of the day is that, you know, Kevin Adams, you know, announcing he will not be the captain of the Buffalo Sabres, which is just sort of really should, shouldn't come to a surprise, come as a surprise to anybody. Uh, anyone who's been following the story, either, you know, uh, closely or casually, this is just a sort of another, another step in this long, slow walk divorce between the, uh, between the two sides. But I mean, you have, you know, you have a top 10 forward in the NHL who's uh, nowhere close to resolving his neck issues, nowhere close to resolving his issue with his team, um, and is going to start the season on the outside looking in. The NHL is not thrilled about this. The NHLPA is not thrilled about this. Of course, the player himself is not thrilled about this. I'm sure Kevin Adams isn't thrilled about this. Buffalo Sabres fans aren't thrilled about this. This is one of those stories where, you know, everybody hates the story. But it can't come to any resolution until the Buffalo Sabres get an offer that they like. And Kevin Adams knows all too well this is one of the deals that's going to be, you know, it's going to hang around your neck like an albatross if it's a if it's a bad deal. Like Adams knows, and this is all sort of, you know, in the in the shadow of a, of a Ryan O'Reilly deal that went horribly awry for the Buffalo Sabres. He needs to hit a tape measure home run, and it doesn't seem as if that home run is is there for him right now so as frustrating as it may be we're playing the waiting game to find out what the conclusion on his neck is and the waiting game to find out where jack eichel is going to land and we've been here all summer long sky every single general manager and i know you've talked to brian burke about this has had a point where a player comes and says i want to be traded and in many of those cases the gm doesn't really want to trade the player but ends up trading the player is there any obligation on the part of the Buffalo Sabres to do the human thing here, back off their ask a little bit just to move the career along for Jack Eichel? Oh, I'm sure the NHL would like that. I just can't see. I don't know that the Buffalo Sabres are in a point just to move on to make everything better for the player at this point. Like, you always... You never want to say things have gotten personal in a, in a business discussion, and this is, in a lot of ways, a business discussion, but it's personal. Like, you don't think for one second this isn't personal for Jack Eichel. This is intensely personal. This is, this is his body. But I don't think that, you know, Terry Pagula is going to, you know, instruct Kevin Adams to just get the best possible deal you can because we need to end this for Jack's sake. Um, that, to me, would have been a decision months ago. I think this is, like, un unless he gets, what he wants, and that is an expensive haul. I don't know that uh, I don't know that Kevin Adams is, is any closer to moving Jack Eichel. Having said that, now as soon as this, you know, the, these quotes, uh, you know, appear on social media, Jack Eichel will trade it <laughs> to the Rangers or the Calgary Flames or whomever. Um, but this one, this one is just sort of grinding along slowly. It's like, you know, it's like it's like someone roller skating down a gravel road. That's kind of how this whole process feels <laughs> between the Buffalo Sabres and Jack Eichel at this point. Well, and Jeff, something we hear in the context of RFA negotiations a lot is deadlines yeah. make deals, right? There's no incentive to get something done until there's some sort of deadline, some sort of pressure point. But 
You yeah. know, from my perspective, it, looking at the Jack Eichel Buffalo situation, they seem both sides seem to be at peace with the fact, you know, he's not playing in Buffalo ever again. So I don't think yeah. the regular season is the pressure point. I just have trouble seeing what is the next point that the next kind of deadline that really forces, you know, whether it's another team to make a better offer or whether it forces Buffalo to change their ask. I don't see the next pressure point on the horizon here. Yeah, I don't, I don't see it either, Jamie. I think it's a really good point to it. And it's not as if the Buffalo Sabres are, you know, have any aspirations about making the playoffs. Like, this is a, this is, just to be blunt, like, there are two teams that we know are going to be really bad. They're going to be in the Shane Wright sweepstakes here, and Buffalo is one of them. Arizona is the other. So you're right. It's not as if, like, wow, we got to make this cycle deal happen. we got to get players in because we're really close to a playoff spot here. No, it almost seems as if. And you never want to wish, you know, key injury on anybody here, but you're almost waiting for one team to be, you know, one one expected playoff team to be in a situation where they have to give more than they're prepared to just to get someone like Jack Eichel in. And listen, maybe that team is the Calgary Flames. It, it, it would make uh, a whole lot of sense. I mean, if, if Calgary stumbles this year out of the gate, uh, you know, where you, you, you wonder about uh, if there are going to be some, some big changes there. Um, but I'm with you. Like, I don't see a, a pressure point on the horizon. Like, the NHL, you know, has, has been involved in this. You know, this is not a good thing for the National Hockey League to have one of their elite star players out of the game, and that couldn't move it along. Um, I'm with you. I don't, I don't see a pressure point, especially considering this is a team that's in the, in the Shane Wright sweepstakes, not the let's go to the playoff sweepstakes. And just to, you know, I want to ask you about Calgary and Vancouver here in a second, Jeff, but just sure. from the acquiring team's perspective as well, right, with the uncertainty around Jack Eichel's health, it's not as if, you know, if you make the panic move to get Jack Eichel in, you're not getting him in the lineup the next day, right? There's going to be a, a no. delay uh, before you get him, to get, get him to actually play for you, which complicates things even further. But, you know, you mentioned Calgary as a potential suitor for Jack Eichel. We've heard that a lot over the summer. Obviously, no. it didn't get done. And, you know, Scotty and I have been kicking it around on the show today. Just looking at the Flames and the Canucks, obviously both teams had very disappointing seasons last year and then had very different off-seasons, right? Canucks made some pretty dramatic moves. Calgary, yeah. not so much. Which team do you think has a better chance of bouncing back and making the playoffs this year? Ooh, wow, loaded. Um, I love what Vancouver did with their forwards. I think Vancouver Canucks fans are going to love Connor Garland. Um, I have my fingers crossed that Elias Pettersson gets done sooner than later. Ditto for, uh, for Quinn Hughes. <sighs> Calgary. See, Calgary's gamble is that we need more Daryl Sutter type players. Like that's what Calgary went out and got. Calgary went out and, you know, uh, and, and, and picked up, you know, players that very much, whether it's, you know, Blake Coleman, uh, Brad Richardson, these these types of guys, like these Sutter-type players, Nikita Zadorov, like they went out and got some snarls. So that's, that's their gamble. I would be inclined to say Calgary, but I really do like it. I know the gamble on Oliver Ekman-Larsen is can he – you know, can he turn his, essentially turn his career around at this point? And can he even do that at, at, at this age? I still like Vancouver. I still do just because of their top nine. Like all of a sudden, you know, you have the Vancouver Canucks and you're Travis Green and you have a lot of options up front. 
and all of a sudden your forward group fits a lot better. I know there's some questions about the blue line. I don't have questions about the net mining. I do have some questions about the back end, but based on, again, this is all contingent on, you know, Pedersen and, and, and Hughes getting done ASAP here. I still like Vancouver better to bounce back and make the playoffs than the Calgary Flames. I, I wonder if, I wonder if they've gone as far as they can with that group with the Flames, where I don't think they've gone as far as they can with this group in Vancouver. In conversation with Jeff Merrick this morning on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd, you mentioned Pedersen and Hughes, two of the three big RFAs that are still out there, Brady Kachuk being the other. Is there a point over the next three weeks where you consider it a threshold, whereby if those players aren't with their respective teams at that point, you start to worry about their ability to start well and the team's ability to start well? Uh, well, I'll tell you what, the, uh, the Rasmus Dahlin contract really changed things for, uh, for Quinn Hughes here and sort of pushed everything up. And I know that Vancouver's looked at just about everything, you know, bridge deal, long-term, they've looked at all of it. Um, Elias Patterson, you know, uh, Vancouver feels they've made a very generous offer at a three-year deal, uh, and that's not getting it done right now. As far as Brady Kachuk goes, I I still, hmm. Brady Kachuk, I wonder about things like structure, about trade protection, about what the last year of a bridge deal would look like. If you look at how you know, Matthew Kachuk did his deal in Calgary, and I mentioned this on the podcast about a month ago, I still wonder about an offer sheet for Brady Kachuk. As whether it's, you know, a one-year loaded up, you know, yes, Barry Kanyemi style offer sheet. I, I still wonder about, uh, 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 about that. Um, I think as you approach, you know, the end, of, the end of training camp, you start to get a little bit, you know, nervous about, uh, about Pedersen and Hughes. But for me, the Brady Kachuk deal might be the most interesting one out of all of them because, I don't know that, you know, I, we know that Vancouver all summer were concerned about an offer sheet for Elias Patterson. That doesn't seem to, to, to be there. The lean drove up the price for Quinn Hughes. When that came in at $6 million, all of a sudden, ugh, the discussion has now changed, uh, much to the Vancouver Canucks chagrin. To me, the most interesting one here, and again, I don't think Ottawa, as much as they want to say the rebuild is over and we're looking at the playoffs, I don't think they still consider themselves a playoff team, at least for another season. So I don't know that they're necessarily, you know, eyeballing wins like Vancouver is. To me, the most curious story here, and we all heard what uh, what Matthew Kachuk told us last week in Chicago on the Thirty Two Thoughts podcast about how the two sides aren't uh, aren't anywhere close. I still think that's the most interesting one, and I think because I, I I think that there's a number of different ways this thing can go, and there's a number of different ways, Scotty, that the, that this deal can break down. And I just wonder about all options. And I, I still wonder, as I have all summer long, if offer sheet could still be a thing here with Brady Kachuk. Leafs fans are wondering what the future holds for Morgan Riley. And it's that own rental thing versus trading an asset if you're not going to get him signed versus can we move other pieces so that we can keep Morgan Riley and Maple Leaf for a bunch more years. What's the best way to proceed here in Toronto? Uh, I think if you're the front of the police, a lot of what happens with Morgan Riley depends on Rasmus Sandin. 
And if Rasmus Sandin can take that next step, if Sandin, you know, at a certain point can, you know, can handle anchoring a, a, a quarterbacking a power play, if he can take that next step in his career, uh, it makes any decision you have with Morgan Riley that much easier. Um, make no mistake about it. There are jobs on the line this year in Toronto. If this thing goes off the rails, if this is another, you know, flame out in the first round or an even bigger disaster, they don't make the playoffs. Some people are going to lose jobs, and everybody knows that. And for that reason, and maybe that reason only, I can't see them making any deals uh, for Morgan Riley at trade deadline as long as they are in it. I think that they're, uh, again, unless Rasmus Sandin takes that next step and can slide into a into a top spot, I think that they're probably married to Morgan Riley all season long, and they'll take their shot at the playoffs knowing full well that if, uh, that if they flame out in the first round again, uh, the decision makers won't be there to worry about the decisions that have been made about Morgan Riley. Jeff, I know we got to let you go in just a minute here, but quickly, I wanted to ask you about the Winnipeg Jets. And I know there's always heat and always pressure in every Canadian market, but it does seem like there's been a little bit less attention on the Jets than we've seen applied to some of the other Canadian teams. And, you know, they have the very similar forward group that we've grown accustomed to to there in Winnipeg. They've remade their defense with some new additions. What do you make of the Jets going into this season? I think they're the best Canadian team. And I think there'll be, a, you know, there's a lot of there was a lot of attention on them last year because there's a lot of attention on all Canadian teams uh, playing in the same division. They can hide in the central a little bit. Colorado's going to suck up all the headlines. Um, like when when you when you look at uh, when you look at the central this year, it does lay out kind of nicely for the Winnipeg Jets. I still think they have, and you, know, you can make the argument, the best forward group uh, of anybody in the uh, in, in the NHL and. You know, I like what they did in the off season. I know it didn't work out with Nate Schmidt in Vancouver. Uh, I like the Brendan Dillon uh, situation there as well. You're always in a game when you have Connor Hellebuck. And I think this is a team that knows that all the excuses are done. Um, I think they're the, 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 the best Canadian team, the one that's poised to do the most damage, and then probably in a, in, the, in a good situation when not a lot of people are talking about them. When they're not the center of attention, like we got, and listen, I think we all expect a bounce back from Pierre Luc Dubois. Like that was, you know, we we raised, you know, we raised the uh, the analogy of you know roller skating down a gravel road earlier. That was Pierre Luc Dubois' season last year, you know, with the acrimony in Columbus and the trade and the quarantine and the injury and playing through it and 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 and. All of a sudden, you, know, you could be looking at a situation where you have Shifley, Dubois, and Adam Lowry one, two, three up the gut. That's real nice. You know, that is a really nice center position uh, that you have if you're the Winnipeg Jets. So um, I like them. I think they're the best Canadian team right now. And I think that expectations are high, and they should be high. This is, this is an elite-level team, in my estimation, in the NHL. Well, I hope the rest of your day is smoother than a, that aforementioned analogy <laughs> on rollerblades, buddy. I hope there's no gravel roads ahead of you. Yeah, and I can't believe we got through a conversation uh, in uh, in today's NHL without mentioning COVID once. That was remarkable. Yeah, we'll get there at some point. It's already come up in the text message inbox, and it was a, it was a pretty big talking point today. We've got Bill Daly coming up later, so you know we have to have that conversation with him. Oh, yeah. Awesome. I'll enjoy it. I'll be tuned in. I always love hearing from Bill. Thank you very much, Jeff. Have a great day. Thanks, gentlemen. That is Jeff Merrick, co-host of 32 Thoughts, a podcast all over Sportsnet's hockey coverage as well. And 
not quite a regular on this show, but we get him on as regularly as yeah. we're able to do. Jamie, it's interesting that he mentions Pierre-Luc Dubois, and he says, hey, we're all expecting a bounce back from Pierre-Luc Dubois. That is part of the synergy, maybe not around the entire National Hockey League, but certainly with a lot of the teams in Canada. Okay, can Oliver ekman Larson bounce back? Can Johnny Gaudreau and Matthew Kachuk bounce back? Can Duncan Keith bounce back? Go across the teams, and you will find somebody almost every single place. Toronto, it's not as much a case, although you might point to their goaltending and say, okay, yeah. Jack Campbell, can he maintain that? Or Peter Morazic, can he bounce back and be the guy when he's at the top end and, and took his team to the Eastern Conference Final a couple of years ago? And with all of those players that you laid out, you can make, you know, you can com compile a pretty decent argument in favor of all of them bouncing back. But, you know, as I was saying on the show yesterday, Scotty, yeah, you can make those good arguments in the preseason, but it doesn't always turn out that way. And not every fan base, not every team is going to get their wish and have all of those players have great bounce back seasons, right? I mean, it could happen, but it's just very unlikely in my estimation. Yeah, Jonathan Duran is probably the guy that you'd look at in Montreal and say, yep. okay, hopefully that he's got himself in a much better space. He understands the anxiety issues that he's been going through. Insomnia won't be as big a factor. Can he bounce back to the guy that they had hoped he was going to be when they traded for him and has flashed at times in Montreal? But there's at least somebody, I would think, in every market in this country. Oh, absolutely there is, right? And it becomes, I think even easier just to kind of build that narrative because last year was so weird, right? And and you can you can understand completely why any individual player would have had a down year last season playing in those conditions. Matt Murray would be the guy in Ottawa in case anybody was wondering. Oh yeah. Oh yes he would. Not that they have much money invested in him or much term making six and a quarter for the next three years, including this one. Yeah, and um, for all the talk of, hey, they want to take this major step forward, it might not matter at all what anyone else on the roster does, really, if Matt Murray doesn't get a whole lot better than he was last year. Yeah, everybody's got a problem or so it seems, and yours probably feels bigger than the others. But we'll point out just how many there are, how rife this is in the National Hockey League right now. Part of our Hour 2 discussion should be a good one. Bruce Boudreau joins us in the second hour of the program as well. It's Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. That right there is an example of the type of song that you're going to find on the Headliners playlist. It's on Apple Music. There's more fist pumpers. There's rock anthems. You'll find it all there. You can add it to your music library so you can listen offline. Listen to the Headliners playlist on Apple Music. Scott Rintoul, Jamie Dodd with you, hour number two of our Thursday edition of the program today. And we're seeing news filter in from around the National Hockey League with teams getting on the ice for the first time today. And what is the line that often gets trotted out on that first day of skating? Guys, don't read too much into this. Hey, yes. don't read too much into this. Right, Jamie? And just like every year, Scotty, it is falling on deaf ears. We are reading things into the line combinations on day one of training camp. I wouldn't have it any other way. Are people reading into what they're seeing with the Vancouver Canucks? I don't think they are. I think if they have a real look at what is out there on the ice today in Abbotsford, they go, okay, maybe there's a world where Besser and Hoaglander are playing on the same line, but I wouldn't put my money on it. Pearson and Horvat in a duo? Okay. I guess that... We've seen that a bunch of times. Maybe that's how they're going to start the season. You look at the forward groups, it's a mix of vets. It's a mix of NHL players and predictable AHL players up front. Maybe the only thing to read into in what is being rolled out in Group A for Vancouver today is Oliver ekman Larson with Mr. Poolman. Is that fair? 
yeah, that's a pairing that I think a lot of people expect to see starting the season, you know, assuming maximum availability for all of the bodies on the blue line. I think that's a one a lot that's one a lot of people thought would be the case. But I do see some people saying, Oh, hey, like interesting that, you know, Nick Batan of the of the surplus centers is the one getting a shot with Besser and Hoaglander. Doesn't necessarily mean anything, but people are taking note of the little the little moves like that. If everybody's healthy and signed, Nick Patan's not on the opening roster no, for the Vancouver no. Canucks. But could Nick Patan be a recall option during the season for the Canucks? Absolutely. And if, you know, for example, Brandon Sutter, who is undergoing some some health issues that we're not entirely clear on, if he's not ready to start the season, could Nick Patan be an option down the middle for the Canucks? Yep, definitely. So not that much to read into in Vancouver. The opposite in Calgary. Like, you can look at Calgary's veteran practice, and we can label them as such today, because basically the way that they've apportioned the groups in Calgary, guys who we expect to be on the opening night roster, you're skating basically right now at the Saddle Dome, and everybody else you're going to be in the other sessions. Here are the lines in Calgary. Lindholm centering Kachuk and Blake Coleman, which is interesting. Monaghan Goudreau together with Andrew Mangiapani. Backlund between Pitlick and Dubé. Richardson between Lewis and Lucic. Richie as the extra forward there. On the back end, also interesting. Chris Tanev, different defensive partner. Yep. Nikita Zadorov alongside Chris Tanev. Noah Hannafin skating with Rasmus Anderson. Yusuf Alamaki with former Canuck. And there's a bunch of those, of course, in Calgary. Eric Goodbranson with Valamaki today. And Shillington and Stone as that other pairing of vets today. There's a lot to read into in what Calgary's doing today. Yeah, that's the kind of lineup where if that's how they set things up on opening night, you wouldn't be too surprised, especially at forward, right? Nikita Zadorov with Chris Tanev, that surprises me a little bit. That's probably the thing that jumps out to me most about those line groupings and combinations that we're seeing. But up front, it's like, okay, yeah, that, that could definitely be the lineup up front for the Flames. Well, you look at the way they did those deep pairings and you go, okay, they put a stabilizing guy with a guy that eh, maybe he's got some warts. Or maybe they want to help elevate. Hannafin and Tanev worked extremely well last year in Calgary. Extremely well. But are yes. you comfortable putting Nikita Zadorov with Rasmus Anderson? Yeah. Who Who's supposed to be the stabilizing force on the Valimaki-Goodbranson pairing? <laughs> if it's Eric Goodbranson, that might not go so well. Fair question. Very fair question. And maybe they'll give it a roll and it ends up being Michael Stone. That's something times in the past but we will see as far as other news that's coming in around the national hockey league right now eric engels tweeted out that there's a memo going out this isn't surprising if you live in the province of bc that it's going to be operating at approximately 50 percent capacity well not approximately that's the capacity for rogers arena to begin the season right now elsewhere in canada other than montreal where they're going 33 percent it sounds like everybody is planning on operating at 100 percent capacity in this country. Yeah, that's again, according to uh, Sportsnet reporter Eric Engels, based out of Montreal, and he's saying that's from a memo the NHL sent out to all of its teams today. So every building in the NHL of the 32, except for two, the Bell Center in Montreal and the Rogers and Rogers Arena in Vancouver, will be at maximum capacity to start the season. And again, it's 33% expected at the Bell Center, 50% at Rogers Arena in Vancouver. And then you start to go to the next part, and this is give it, this gives you an indication of just how different the landscape is around the National Hockey League right now. Part of this is a product of our two countries and state regulations compared to what's happening here in Canada. So Engels goes on to tweet, 
for the 32 NHL teams, there's 10 of them right now, just under a third of the league, that will require proof of vaccination. Like You have to have proof of vaccination to get in, and if you don't have that, when you get vaccinated, come back and see us. There's eight of 32 that say we'll take proof of vaccination or we will take a negative COVID test. That's the case in Alberta, for example, heading into the season. That means there's 18 teams requiring that. There's 14 yeah. teams, and all of them located south of the border. Man, you don't have to have any proof whatsoever. Yep. Just show up. We'd like you here. And then there's also 21 of 32 will make all fans wear masks. So you do the math, and some of those 14 of 32 that don't require uh, vaccination proof or a negative COVID test, they also fall into the category of do not require masks for fans either. Well, and this is where I said every team seems to have a problem, depending on what you consider a problem. The big story coming out of Edmonton yesterday, and there have been plenty of words written about this and a lot said about this, Josh Archibald, he's not vaccinated, and he's the lone guy who's left. And there's some quotes in Mark Spector's story that's at sportsnet.ca where Mike Smith, he took a little convincing by the sounds of it. That isn't a quote from Ken Holland. That's just what Speck dug up in his reporting. Duncan Keith, he was vaccinated late, but he's vaccinated. Josh Archibald is the lone holdout, and it's pretty clear what's going to happen in Edmonton. Either he gets the jab or he goes and plays in the AHL this year. Yep, a very similar situation in a lot of degrees, except it hasn't been officially decided, but to what we saw with Zach Ronaldo and Columbus, right? Okay, that's your choice. This is our choice. You're going to the AHL. And as we said, depending on your importance to the team, the rules are probably going to be a little different. And maybe it's by organization, but we saw what happened with Tyler Bertuzzi yesterday in Detroit. Steve Eisenman said he's got a choice. This is the choice he's making. It does mean that he's not going to be able to join us on our trips to Canada. Like, yep. that's not going to happen because of the quarantine requirements. So that's the choice he's making, and these are the consequences that come with it. And we all know there's a financial implication here. Like Someone did the math yesterday. I think it was Stephen Wino who tweeted it out that if he were to miss the number of games they're slated to play in Canada, he's healthy and available for all of them, it would, it would cost him about four hundred grand this year. Yeah, so a significant chunk of change. But, again, that's for an American team who doesn't have, you know, I, I think it was something like nine games in Canada that they would play this year, right? So, okay, not nothing, and it still results in a pretty healthy chunk of change. But if you look at it from, for example, Archibald's perspective in Edmonton or, or any the play, a player for any Canadian team, really, you're playing such a big chunk of your games in the United States and involving cross-border travel there that, you know, as Ken Holland said, it could be 30 games that you have to miss. And then you do the math on your lost salary in that situation and it gets really high really quickly. Not as high as what Andrew Wiggins could potentially forfeit. Oh, Did you man. see that from the oh, NBA? Oh, oh, man. There's a fear in Golden State right now because Golden State is one of two places in the NBA where if you're not vaccinated, you might not be able to play home games, let alone games out of state and the travel and all that. But because of the rules in California, there's a fear that Andrew Wiggins, who is unvaccinated and has been on the record as saying, no, that's not for me, that he might have to miss 41 home games. And by virtue of the border rules right now and Golden State playing in Toronto this year, that would be 42. The quick math I did is that Andrew Wiggins, if he were to go that way and he doesn't get a religious exemption, which some feel he may be able to get, if he doesn't get that and, and health authority or health authorities don't overturn that, because apparently in the state of California, they have the ability to do that in a case like this. 
Andrew Wiggins would forfeit about 15 million bucks if yeah. they suspended him the way that you're going to be able to do in the NBA. Well, and don't forget, I mean, he plays in California, right? There's a bunch of other NBA teams that Golden That's State right. play in California, right? So the Lakers, the Clippers, the Kings, you're missing those games too, even on the road. That's a that's well over half of your schedule that you're ineligible for all of a well, sudden. Well, and, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong here, Jamie, but I thought there were only two teams in the NBA that had what Golden State has going on where right. home, home players wouldn't be able to. So he would theoretically be able to play at the Staples Center. For example, that's right, because it's, it's a municipal regulation, I believe, in San Francisco, right? Not a but, state regulation. Yes, but he wouldn't level. be able to yeah. play his home. I mean, that's a big chunk. So that's one of the conversations that's going on around the NHL right now. And different teams are taking different approaches. And we'll see if there's any more high-profile players. Tyler Bertuzzi isn't a superstar in this league, but he's important enough to the Detroit Red Wings that I don't know what their thought was coming in and how they were going to treat this with their players. He's important enough to them that this is the flexibility they're willing to have, that they won't have him for those games should he choose to remain unvaccinated. Did you see Montreal, how many guys are missing? And it's not because of COVID. It's just that they've got a bunch of different injuries. Carey Price we knew about. Everybody knows Shea Weber's not expected to play hockey again this season, maybe ever again in his career. Like Mike Hoffman's out there dealing with a lot. Yeah, Carey Price has a knee injury that's going to keep him out for the remainder of camp, most likely. Paul Byron as well, a couple of other depth guys. Yeah, no, missing some key bodies as well in Montreal. Not just the volume, but obviously with Carey Price, but even Paul Byron and Mike Hoffman, those are guys they're really counting on to have in the lineup. They had the lengthy run last year, shortened off season, tough to get turned around after having some procedures in that off season, and tough division that they're going back into. We talk about how Toronto's going to fare in that division, and guess what? you got to see Tampa Bay and Boston again. Montreal's operating in the same space. Not going to be easy to try to replicate what they did last year. And I just think the playoff picture overall in the Eastern Conference is going to be really, really tough to crack, right? Because as you said, that Atlantic division where you have Tampa and Boston and Toronto, Florida had a really good year last year. It's no easy thing to crack the top three there. And then you go and look at the other division in the Eastern Conference. And I mean, it's pretty loaded up as well with Carolina, the Islanders, you know, Pittsburgh, okay, they won't have Evgeny Malkin. We still think they'll be good. Same with Washington, right? We still think they'll be good. Just making the playoffs in the Eastern Conference is a pretty tall order. Can we revisit that Pittsburgh conversation for a second? Because Hextall announces today that Evgeny Malkin's going to miss at least the first two months of the season as he recovers. We know Crosby is probably going to miss the start of the season. We just don't know how deep that's going to go after he had a procedure. Is this the year that maybe Pittsburgh doesn't qualify? This is the standard bear in the NHL, depending on what you think of the play-in tournament a couple of years ago. Did Pittsburgh make it, or did Pittsburgh not make the playoffs a couple of years ago, Jamie? How do you qualify that? That's a very interesting one. I would probably lean towards saying that they did, just because it was such a weird year. I'm willing to kind of give teams the benefit of the doubt, and I know the NHL includes it as postseason scoring or postseason games as well, but I I get the other side, which is like, no, come on. You actually have to get in to get in. So I would lean yes, but it's a weird one. It's funny because we look at it differently depending on which team we're talking about. Edmonton, because of their track record, we say, well, I don't know if they really made the playoffs. They got bounced by Chicago. Pittsburgh, because it's been the gold standard. Like, Pittsburgh's strength, if we include that as making the playoffs, Pittsburgh's string of making the playoffs is, it's not even close. No one else in the league's even close to Pittsburgh making it, what is it, 15 consecutive years now? I think that's in yeah, and around like the number. That. Yeah, maybe it maybe it's at fourteen, but it's it's right there. Nobody else is anywhere near that right now. 
But because of the strength of that division and because you're not going to have Malkin and because Crosby is coming off an injury and each of those players, like everyone else, has another year of wear and tear, is this the year that maybe Pittsburgh takes that step back and doesn't actually get into the dance? I still have trouble betting against Sidney Crosby, right? Assuming he's able to get back into the lineup relatively quickly, it's just really hard for me to bet against a Sidney Crosby-led team making the playoffs. There's plenty of holes you can poke in that roster, though, right? Like, up and down the lineup. There's there's a lot of questions that are fair to ask about Pittsburgh, and I know with Malkin out two months to start the season, that's really difficult as well. I just, again, I have a mental block where it's going to be really hard for me until it happens to pick against Sidney Crosby making the playoffs. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you just because of the track record. We have the conversation about Tom Brady every year. Oh, is this the year? And it, and kind of the same with the Penguins making the play. Okay, until you show me that you're actually out and I see that everybody's played all of their games and yeah. I look at those standings and you're not playing in the in the final 16, I guess at that point I'll have to accept it. A lot more hockey talk coming your way. Bruce Boudreau joins us at the bottom of the hour. Let's get to what they're saying. This is a big story around the National Hockey League today. We wanted you to hear from the general manager himself. I don't know what your expectation was, Jamie, of Jack Eichel going to Sabres camp and undergoing his physical. Did you think he would deem, be deemed fit to play? No, I did not expect that. I, I expected him to fail. As did I. And Kevin Adams announced that today when he addressed the media. Just to back up, I think it's really important to talk about since this process uh, has begun with Jack, his health has been what's most important to all of us, his health as a person. Um, and that's from me through our medical staff, the whole organization. I think we would all agree that uh, we were hoping to, as we work through the offseason, to avoid surgery. Um, certainly with any injury, um, in particular in this one when you're dealing with the neck, uh, that would have been best case scenario. Unfortunately, yesterday, Jack did not pass his physical. Um, at this point, Jack is um, not willing to move forward with what our doctors are suggesting is the fusion surgery. Um, so we're going to continue to um, work towards solutions. Uh, I will say Pat Brisson has been um, great to deal with since he's gotten involved in this process. We speak uh, multiple times a day. Um, he's, he's one of the best in the business for a reason. Um, and we're going to continue to work at this. But it's uh, obviously a challenging situation. But that's where we are as of, as of this morning. We all hear great things about Pat Brisson. I just found that interesting because Pat Brisson represents Lise Pedersen and Quinn Hughes, and I think very highly of Pat Brisson myself. It's interesting that those deals aren't done, however. Yes, and, uh, you know, Kevin Adams speaking multiple times a day with Pat Brisson. Pat Brisson's got a lot of phone calls every, scheduled every day, right? He speaks daily with Jim Benning multiple times a day with Kevin Adams. Where does he find the time? Kevin Adams probably didn't need to say this, but he did it anyway, and he made it pretty clear, something we all assume. But he talked about the sea, the sweater that it's been residing on, and not being there anymore. Uh, I spoke to Jack um, two days ago. I spoke to the team yesterday and addressed this. Jack Eichel is no longer the captain of the Buffalo Sabres. Uh, from our perspective and my perspective, I feel the captain is the heartbeat of your team. And we're in a situation from where we were in the past and where we are now that um, felt that we needed to, to address that and make that decision. Jack and I have had a lot of conversations together um, in person, on the phone, over the course of this offseason. I've spoken to his previous agents daily, his, his Pat Brisson daily. There's been a lot of communication. Jack's here for his physical. 
you know, he made it clear to me um, that he he doesn't want to be a distraction. He doesn't want to you know take away from what we are trying to to build here. Um, so he will uh, continue his rehab. You know, not necessarily in this facility on a daily basis, but uh, you know, and then we'll we'll work towards where we go from here. So are you open to playing for us again? Nope. Nope. You reconsidered the neck fusion instead of the disc replacement? Nope. I'm still going to go with the disc replacement. Okay, well, you can't be our captain anymore. Like, we all knew this was coming. And I, yes. I guess I understand why he needed to say it, because people would have said, well, who's the captain of your hockey team? To, the, to which the answer would be, well, not Jack Eichel. Yeah. It's it's it was going through the motions, right? That's what it felt like. Is okay. We all know these next steps have to happen. You're gonna fail your physical. We're gonna remove the captaincy from you. You're not gonna skate with us. It's just going through the motions, but with no end in sight, right? It, it doesn't feel like anything that happened yesterday is getting us any closer to a resolution. Bill Daly's gonna join the show in a couple of hours. And spoiler alert, one of the questions I am going to ask Bill Daly is what role, if any, does the NHL play in the resolution for the Sabres and Jack Eichel? Elliot reported last month that there was this big meeting and the yeah. PA had reps there, the NHL had reps there, the Sabres, Eichel's camp, and it was probably a conversation about how do we move on from this because as much as this is First and foremost, about Jack Eichel, his health, and resuming his individual career. It's also about the Sabres trying to get return for a player that they committed a lot of term and a lot of money to and a lot of draft capital to. It's also about the NHL saying, we would like to have one of our stars back out there healthy and on the ice, and this whole process is being held up. And obviously the PA has a say in this when they're representing one of their own. Yeah, and they they want Jack Eichel to get back on the ice and to continue his career and from the NHL's perspective, you know, it's one that you have a top star player who's not going to play, who's not going to be available for fans to watch. And that hurts, but it's also just what a negative situation this is and how, how this is kind of, you know, we had Jeff Merrick on last hour and you asked him, what's the biggest storyline? It's this, it's nothing positive, right? It's not even Seattle getting going in their inaugural season. It's this kind of miserable situation that everybody is stuck in, in Buffalo. That's not a good thing for the league either. Seattle is getting going, not in its inaugural season, but down the stretch. Did you see this? The Mariners, they've won four in a row now, the last two against the Oakland A's. They've actually leapfrogged the A's in the wild card standings in the American League. Jays lost the third game of a three-game series. First time they've dropped a series in eight. They lost it to Tampa Bay. They got blown out yesterday. And now Toronto goes into Thursday, a half game back of the New York Yankees suddenly. Yankees and Red Sox have been cleaning up on inferior competition the last few day days. So the Jays are chasing. But they'll make up a game tonight. So if they take care of their own business against the Minnesota Twins at the start of this four-game series, they'll be tied with the Yankees in the standings as of tomorrow morning but that's not what everybody's talking about coming out of this game it's no. ryan barucki getting ejected for throwing at kevin kiermeyer two days after kiermeyer picked up the scouting report card that was in alejandro kirk's wristband and brought it back to his dugout and then the jays went over and asked for it and they wouldn't give it back but that was a couple of days ago and the jays waited until the eighth inning of the final game to throw at him here's what kevin kiermeyer had to say about it after the game it was intentional. I mean, it pretty much, uh, you know, almost went behind me. And I thought if they were going to do it, it'd be my first bat. And then once that was over with, I uh, didn't really um, 
register in my mind again. And uh, you know, I thought it was a, a weak move, to, to be quite honest. But it is what it is. It's over. It didn't hurt by any means. Um, so I don't care. Whatever. We we move on. We got a series win, and uh, I hope I hope we play those guys. I really do. I hope we play them. I'm a Jays fan, but I'm with Kiermaier on this. I think the Jays should have handled this earlier if that's what they were going to do. Don't wait until the eighth inning of a game that you're getting blown out in a couple days later. However, Jamie, I like the fact that there's juice here, and I wanted these yeah. teams to play in the playoffs anyway, but I want it even more now. I mean, I, as a Jays fan, kind of don't want them to play in the playoffs just because the Rays are really good and the Jays never seem to be able to get the best of them, as we saw again this week at the Trop. But I get it from a drama perspective now and an entertainment perspective. The fact that Kiermaier came out and said that, we want those guys because that was weak. Okay, I can get on board now. Yeah, there's some juice to the series all of a sudden. There was going to be a little bit because this is the only team the Jays can play if they're going to make it into the regular part of the playoffs. If, yeah. If that's the best team in the American League. That's a team that clinched a playoff berth yesterday. They're going to have the top seed. The Jays, Red Sox, Yankees, Mariners, whoever it happens to be, has to go through that one-game winner-take-all showdown. Hoping to book a date with the Rays. Now there's a little more juice. I didn't like the fact it took them two days. If they were going to do something, do it early. I mean, I would just say, whether it's two days, whether it's earlier, like, don't throw at him. Come on. I mean, I get it. Like, what is he supposed to do? Literally, intelligence fell into his lap. Of course he took it. Of course he looked at it. Why are you throwing at him? I agree. It's pretty weak on the Jays' part. But give it back when they go over and ask for it. No? Yeah, that's fair. But I still I don't, don't have a problem I, with, I just I don't have a problem with him whole... picking it up. I don't have a problem with him picking it up whatsoever. I found it laughable. He said, oh, I wasn't sure if it was my own. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you knew ridiculous. it wasn't yours. That's fine. You Speaking found of it. Weak. Yeah, yeah. You found it. You used it. That's fine. But when they come and say, "We, hey, we know you have it." All right, joke's over. You need to give that back. Yeah, you need to hand that back. Yeah, but we. Yeah, we'll talk a little more baseball later in the show. We're going to focus more on hockey now. Bruce Boudreaux, NHL Network analyst, currently he joins us next on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dot. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. A lot of people disagree with me, Jamie. A lot of people disagree. They think it's cool. In fact, they're down with it. They think it's more hockey style that the Jays took a couple of days to throw at Kevin Kiermeyer. that they waited, that they had a little long memory hockey style retribution. <laughs> not that long a memory, though. It's only a couple of days. It's still the same series, right? It's not like they waited until next year to go get it or anything like that. Same series, but it felt like a lot had happened in between, didn't it? Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I will say I'm not surprised that they waited for a blowout situation, just given where they are in the standings, given how important every game is, right? So I, I wonder if there was even a sense of, look, these games are too important. We're not going to do it. But then it got to a late game, a blowout. Look, we're not winning this one anyways. Okay, maybe we changed our mind. Maybe we're going to do something here. But isn't that something we complain about in the National Hockey League? Guys who pick their spots that they don't go have a fight, whatever it happens to be, try to have try, try to exact payback in the the ways that you're allowed to right after something happens that they wait and go, ah, it's it's a little too close of a game right now. I guess I can't do it. I'll wait until the situation suits me best or the player on the other side suits me best. 
Oh, for sure. And I think, like, the ritual of throwing at guys in baseball in general is kind of goofy when you really think about it. Like, I, I don't know what exactly it's supposed to accomplish because this situation's not going to arise again. So it's not as if you're deterring Kevin Kiermeyer from doing something similar in the future. So it, it's kind of goofy. It doesn't accomplish anything to begin with. No, it certainly doesn't. But that is the time-honored tradition. That's how you get back <laughs> uh-huh. in that sport. And it doesn't sound like it's going anywhere. It's Scott Rental. It's Jamie Dodd, soon to be joined by former NHL head coach, looking to still get back in the game in that capacity, working with the NHL Network right now. He is Bruce Boudreaux, and he'll be along with us in just one second. I don't know if Boudreaux, I haven't thought about enough cases over the years to think if he's ever dealt with something like what's happening with Evander Kane down in San Jose. He's not going to be at Sharks camp until – this investigation is settled and I'm not talking about the gambling one because that one's over, but it's one one investigation into another. I think most people who followed this story understand how messy is probably the word I'm going to describe. It, It doesn't, that doesn't properly describe the very serious allegations that have been levied here, but I think it describes what we often term a divorce and a parting of ways from his his estranged wife, who he has made allegations against, and now she has made similar domestic abuse allegations against him and, and sexual assault allegations. And, and as you said, extremely, extremely serious allegations as well. And, you know, as you said, one, one investigation into another. The gambling one wrapped up. No evidence that he bet on hockey, that he bet on games he was participating in, anything like that. But we're right into another major, very, very serious investigation into Evander Kane. And we will see where that investigation goes. It'll be conducted by an outside party. The NHL would have oversight on that. And then hopefully we'll get a report in the very near future as as to where that is going, if there's any charges that are going to be laid, et cetera, et cetera. As mentioned, we're going to talk plenty of hockey here. Bruce Boudreaux, former NHL head coach, NHL network analyst, joining us here on the program today. Bruce, thank you very much for doing this. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? We are well. And as you know, there are a couple of markets in Canada looking at pretty prominent players not being in the lineup right now. Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes in Vancouver. Brady Kachuk in Ottawa. As a coach, where did you feel an absence of of an important player started to disrupt your camp? Well, that's a good question. I mean, um, it, it always disrupts it, but when the player is not there, you you go on as if he's not going to be there, and you put your lines, your training camp lines together and everything, not when the guy's going to appear, but as if he's not going to appear. So, I mean, I think they'll be really thankful, both coaches um, of those respective teams, when they do arrive in camp, but you've got to go under the uh, assumption that they're not going to be there and make uh, make your lines accordingly and the training camp schedule accordingly. Is it more difficult, less difficult than to deal with a prominent player who has an injury at the beginning of the season? Well, um, I think it would be more difficult. Um, hard to hard to say. I've never uh, been uh, in my years had a camp where a player is held out, so I haven't had that situation um, before. But uh, if an injury, if it's an injury, the guy is there all the time. You're talking to him. He's in on the film sessions. He's uh, he's probably doing a lot of rehab right in the arena with you, and he's with the guys. So you know you know the you know what's happening when the player is not there. 
um, and you're not really allowed to talk to them, it's sort of it's sort of difficult. Even if it is a player like uh, Pedersen or or Quinn Hughes who know the systems and and who know everything else, it'd be more difficult if it was a new coach. But I mean, it's the same coach, so they should know what's going to happen and get up to get up to speed very quickly. But uh, um, you never know. So I mean. I would think it would be easier if the player was an injured player. Bruce, what would your message be to the rest of the team in a situation like that, right? Where you're dealing with a high, high profile absence at camp and, you know, whether it's a contract situation like Elias Pedersen or Quinn Hughes or, you know, something more, uh, more complicated, maybe like what we're seeing with Jack Eichel in Buffalo, how would you address it with the rest of the team that is there in training camp? Well, I mean, with the eventually, Hughes and Pedersen are going to be with Vancouver. There's no doubt. I can't remember. I mean, Nylander was the longest holdout that I remember uh, happening. So, I mean, uh, you know, and they're probably talking to them uh, off uh, when they get away from practice or uh, a lot of the time. And it's, but that's going to get done. With the Jack Eichel thing, I would say, boys, let's just go under the assumption that Jack Eichel is never going to play for us again. And let's, let's work at it at that. And I think that's how, how the Sabres, by stripping him of his captaincy, are, are going about it. And I'm sure the players all know from the beginning of the, season, uh, beginning of the summer last year that, hey, we're not going to have Jack is no longer going to be part of the Sabres. So I think they're beyond Jack Eichel at this point. Is there an opportunity to use it as a bit of motivation almost there in Buffalo, right? Because, okay, our best player, he was our captain. He decided he wants out. Can you turn that into a bit of a chip on the shoulder for the rest of the team and say, hey, let's prove him wrong. Let's go out and show that we have a lot to offer here? Well, I'm sure they're going to. And I'm sure individually players like Casey Middlestad are going to say, this is the best opportunity I've ever had in my life now. I'm going to go take advantage of it. But, uh, um you know, if Vancouver was, a, or I'm sorry, if Buffalo was a team that was sort of on the cusp of making the playoffs, uh, I would sit there and say, okay, let's use it as a motivating factor. The The truth of the matter is uh, Buffalo is far from a playoff team this year. And uh, even though they'll use it, they'll try to use it, I don't think that'll be, uh, that's going to improve their, their team enough to make a substantial difference in in what happens uh, on the ice. Bruce Boudreaux in conversation with us here this morning, Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. They made a bunch of changes in Vancouver in the off season. Calgary, not so much. They made some around the edges, and I'm not trying to diminish Blake Coleman, but they didn't make the types of changes that people thought they were going to make with the Flames. We've been asking our listeners this morning, which of those two teams, Vancouver or Calgary, each of which had very disappointing seasons last year, is better positioned to bounce back and be a playoff team? Um, again, a good question. Uh, you know what? I think Calgary is always for the last three years since they won the division, thinks they've got a really good team. And then the last couple of years have been a disappointment. Um, and so I, I really believe that they believe in, in the group that they have. And I think, uh, uh, they believe that with Daryl uh, at the helm now for a whole year and including training camp, that they're going to be much better suited. I'm not so sure of that, but uh, uh, I, I think I was saying it on this show last year. I thought I picked Vancouver to be one of the better teams off the, the bubble playoff that they had in the, 
and the way they had always played against uh, me when I was in, in Minnesota. And um, I think, you know, if they if and when they get those two guys back and can stay healthy, I think they can be a, a real good playoff uh, contender. Uh, I've always liked their team. I like their work ethic. Um, I like their coach. And so, I mean, uh, I would I would consider Vancouver if they get Pedersen and Hughes back uh, uh, and it's not a long hold, uh, not a long holdout. Um, I, I think that, that they would be a better bet for me. Calgary, I pretty well know what they got. Um, Coleman's going to be in an awful lot different situation uh, than he was in Tampa as a third line guy. Uh, now they're expecting him to be a top six forward, I believe. And uh, uh, whether he can step in and be that, be that kind of player, I mean, it's uh, yet to be seen. Even though, you know, he was he was that kind of player in Jersey, but Jersey was very thin and didn't have much of a team, so he was sort of forced to be a top six forward. I, I don't know if he's a legitimate top six forward, and uh, that will that's what we'll see and find out soon. Yeah, he skated beside Lindholm with Kachuk on the other wing today, so that expectation, it would seem to be there from day one. I do want to get back to Vancouver here in just one second, but while we're on the Flames at the tail end of that answer, they did something that not a lot of teams do. They put all their vets together on day one. The lineup that they iced in that group today, it could very well be what we see on opening night for the Calgary Flames. The message from Daryl Sutter from day one of training camp, by virtue of that to you, is what, Bruce? Well, I think um, Daryl wants to get down to his team as quick as possible. And and when he gets to, there's going to be a couple guys on the outskirts and, you know, I mean, fringe players that are going to probably be in the top 27 or 20, 26 or 27. But, I mean, that just tells me he wants to get to his team as soon as possible. This is not about, uh, let's see if this guy has a chance or that guy has a chance or who's coming to camp and, um, can sneak in. He pretty well knows <clears throat> his lineup right now, and he wants to get down to that group as quick as possible. And that's that's not unusual. Almost all coaches want to do that. They they would love to see the American League players and and the young prospects. But at the same time, we all want to get to our group as soon as possible to start working on our group. And if we can have a solid two and a half to three two weeks with these guys, and then they'll be ready for the season. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons you don't like to sit there and, and experiment for the first two weeks and then the last week of the se- uh, the preseason, okay, let's get them together. All Daryl's doing is getting wanting his team and wanting to get going as quick as possible so they can get a jump on everybody in the first 10 games of the season. And uh, I applaud him for that because that's what I would want to do. Bruce, you mentioned earlier in this conversation that you never had a point during your career where you had prominent players that were missing the start of camp. You were fortunate enough to avoid that. But I know what you did have was a player who left a situation, was looking for a fresh start. I think of Anaheim, Ryan Kessler comes to mind, for example. He arrives in a slightly different way than Oliver ekman Larson arrives in Vancouver, but it's that fresh start. We need you to be a big part of this team right away. Was there anything you did as a coach to better acclimate that player right away and get him going with that bounce back? Or did you just leave that to the room to handle? Um, well, I, you know, he started right off um, uh, a little bit like what Daryl's doing. He was number two center right behind Ryan Getzlaff and made him 
tried to make him feel as important as uh, uh, as as I could. I mean, he knew a lot of the players already uh, in our team, and I think he settled in um, from the first day. Uh, like, I mean, he wasn't a, a spry twenty-two-year-old kid that was getting to know the NHL guys. Here's he'd played guys in the in the Pacific Division the, the whole uh, his whole career. He knew a lot of the guys. The exit was on the team. He had good friends on the team. So, I mean, uh, there was very little that we really had to massage to get him in there. And besides, Kess was a real pro, and uh, he came to camp in great shape and worked right off the bat. And, and you knew from the first time he stepped on the ice, he was going to be a leader. And the one thing about Kess, uh, he never wanted to settle for second best. He wanted to be the best player out there. So he showed it in his work ethic right away. I mean, um, you know, I remember leaving practice the maybe the first or second day of training camp said, man, this guy's a player. Bruce, one thing we've seen uh, consistently from Travis Green in his time in Vancouver is if a player really impresses in training camp or in the preseason, they're willing to make room and, okay, we thought maybe you were headed to the AHL, but you forced our hand and we'll make a roster move and we'll find a way to get you on the opening night roster. How much stock did you put as a coach in what players did in training camp in the preseason when you were making those roster decisions? Uh, you know, you put a lot of it in. I mean, I'm a guy that was in the minors for an awful long time and knew that the guys didn't get opportunities to uh, uh, sometimes uh, to, to play when they should have. So, I mean, I really pushed for the underdog a lot of the time. Um, you know, I was I, I really pushed for Patty Maroon to make the team right, uh, right off the bat, and you'd be in the coach's office and say, hey, this guy looks really good. I think we should keep him. Matt Hendricks was another guy that I had in the minors, and, and you're hoping that they uh, come in and, and show what they can do and and do a great job but you know same thing with i mean guys that you have when you're coaching in the minor league team that you have faith in and do a great job for you you want to see do successful stuff in the nhl and you have faith in them i mean i remember when i came up uh, the dave steckles of the world and i said the matt Hendrickses and 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 guys like this the brooks lakes uh, that were on the Boyd Gordons, that were on the outskirts in Washington. I mean, I wanted them to succeed because I knew as a coach I could put them on the ice and I knew I'd get the results that I wanted to because I had faith in those guys. So, yeah, if you have a guy that's in the minors and has a great camp and you feel, especially if you've uh, uh, coached in the minors or you've played a lot in the minors, you want this guy to succeed. And uh, uh, so you, you feel a little bit for him. And you probably put him in positions to succeed a little more than if you didn't know the player at all. Well, and I think it's the kind of thing that can pay dividends for the for the team and the organization down the road, right? Because if other players in that situation see, hey, that guy came in and he did what he had to do at training camp and they found a way to get him on the team, that's going to encourage people down the road to to work hard and put that extra effort in because they know there's a legitimate possibility they can actually make the NHL team out of training camp. A hundred percent. And the other thing they do is, you know, I mean, on the first meeting, um, almost every, to, to a team, they sit up there and say, listen, we want the best 23 players on our team. So it doesn't matter if you're an eighth rounder or a sixth rounder or a free agent or whatever. And they all say it. Very few teams do it, but they all say it, that we want the best uh, best players on the team. So if you happen to see one or two guys 
uh, having a fabulous training camp and you keep them up, then I think that's quite a reward. And the other teams say just what you said, hey, if we do our best, we'll, we'll be successful. I remember even in, in mini, um, we had uh, uh, our – we were going on a road trip and we were going away for four days and uh, uh, going to a resort after, after the game in Colorado. And, and we brought two extra guys that had a great training camp or, or, and we wanted them to reward them with that. And it ended up Carson Soucy ended up staying and uh, an injury came and on this, uh, on this trip and he ended up staying and making the team. And I mean, he's going on to have a great career and I think he's, he hasn't even touched how good he's going to be when he's a couple couple more years of experience. And I'm like anyone else. We all love the underdog story. We all love the blue-collar, did everything he could, got the most out of his training camp, earned a spot story. But there's also the flip side of that, which is, hey, there's a veteran that has to be displaced in some of these situations. How much leeway did you give those guys who'd shown they could do it and had a couple hundred games under their belt? Well, you know what? You give them the leeway. Um, and you just hope that that those guys don't rest on their laurels, the fact that they've been an NHL player. I mean, there's so many factors that occur in this. You want the underdog to come in, but you still have to, um, you know, money is money. And as some of these veterans are making a lot of money. And, and uh, even though the younger guys are playing better, if they've got a year of eligibility where they don't have to get waived, sometimes it's tough for the coach to co- convince the GM to keep him and, and, uh, uh, try to send a guy that's making, you know, two million dollars down to the minors because that's the last thing ownership on any NHL team wants to see is a guy making that kind of money stuck in the minors. The memo's gone out. Sounds like we're going to see a cross a cross checking um, crackdown, if I can get that correctly, at least in the preseason and maybe early in the season. What does that look like from a coach's standpoint, Bruce? What type of consistency are you looking for when it comes to that particular infraction? Well, I mean, every year there there's some there's one new penalty that that the the refs want to want to really look at, and uh, there's a crackdown, and you'll see the first five preseason games, eight hookings and and such, and you let something go. But with, with the cross checking, I, I I think there's what what they're going to look for is the extension of the arms um, that hit a player when he ends up. Uh, with force and uh, um, I don't know how long it'll last because I mean that's one of the uh, the few bastions of the game where you can be physical in front of the net is with your stick and and cross-checking because you certainly can't push guys out of the way anymore so I mean the only way to get them out of there is is using your stick and pushing them out so we'll see I mean but usually when something like that happens uh, they start letting other things go like I mean if if they're going to call all cross-checkings Maybe they're not going to call as many hookings as possible, or or uh, interferences, or or what have you. But uh, it's tough to to call everything if you're a referee and be be on top of it. Or there'll be twelve penalties on each side of game. And I think we're all lockstep as hockey fans. We're all fine with getting rid of that cross check that's about five to seven feet from the boards from behind and a player goes vaulting into the boards head first or shoulder first, and some bad injuries occur. It's that front of the net one that's going to be the difficult one to police. What, for you, crosses the line when it comes to cross-checking in front of the net? Oh, when it gets on the shoulder, the top of the shoulders, and then sometimes your stick can 
go off the shoulder and into the helmet and into the neck area. Um, those things are, are very dangerous. I mean, um, you know what? The players got a lot of protection on the ribs and everything else nowadays. I mean, they almost have like Kevlar vests where they're wearing. So it's, it, it doesn't hurt as much as, you know, back when I played, if you give the guy the shot in the ribs, man, you could really feel it. The players don't feel it as much or they don't feel it in the back as much. Um, but, it, you know, I mean, it's those ones up top of the shoulder that can slip off the shoulder and into the into the head area that are going to really cause a lot of damage. And I agree with you. Uh, the, the five to seven foot away from the boards things, those should be called automatically now. Like, I mean, as soon as you see the stick uh, extended and hit somebody, call that as a penalty. It's the ones in front of the net that are going to be dicey and there's going to be some that are going to go, oh, man, that wasn't a penalty. And But you got to start somewhere. I mean, uh, um, when they started doing the hooking ones, I mean, we all sat there and said, that's not a penalty, that's not a penalty. But the players have learned to police themselves pretty well and they're pretty good at keeping their stick off off guys now. And that's the way it's going to be with the cross-checking. Yeah, it's sort of the same way with slashing on the wrist. They called a lot of it at first. Guys stopped doing it to a, a large extent, and eventually they all got on the same page. Bruce, really appreciate your time, as always. Thanks for the insight again today. Have a great Thursday. We'll talk again soon. I hope so. Take care, guys. Good luck this year. Thank you. That's Bruce Boudreaux wishing us luck. <laughs> hey, I'll take it. I'll hey, take I could, it. I was going to say, I could use it. I could use it. <laughs> yeah, man, I could I could use some luck. I think we all could use a little bit of luck in our in our lives. The interesting part with the cross-checking as well to me, Jamie, is do they start suspending guys for those five- to seven-footers away from the board? Yeah. Call them? No problem. Automatic. Throw a guy out of the game for something like that? Okay. We have heard rumors that if those are the types of cross-checks that are employed, the league's actually going to come to a place where it goes, sit for a couple. We can't have that anymore. We can't have guys going flying into the boards at the speeds we we skate at out here and having concussion issues or uh, clavicle problems, what have you. And I would love to see that. I would love to see them take that next step, as you say, of going to actually issuing suspensions in certain situations for those hits. We also know how this often goes with the NHL, right? When they introduce that they're, okay, we're going to really focus on this rule. We're going to really try to crack down on this. It doesn't always take. So I hope that we'll see it, but I'm not necessarily counting on it either. Dex says, hard to imagine players won't be diving more often with the new cross-checking rule. Sorry, Tyler Myers, you're probably going to see the sin bin a lot in the early going. Bruce sort of alluded to something that I had speculated on before. Is it the extension of the arm that they're looking for there? Yeah. I can see that being part of the barometer with which I, with which they judge. Yes, absolutely. That's going to be that's going to be part of the criteria they're looking for. I think it should be, but is that the only thing? We'll wait and see how it, it's employed. But you're probably, as a fan, going to get a little frustrated in the early going, seeing how many cross-checking penalties that are being called in the games. We're going to turn our attention to, obviously, the burgeoning stories in the National Hockey League, but there's a couple other football-related stories to get into here today, Jamie. Something we don't see very often happened last night. I'll tell you what it was next, right here on Rinto and Cern with Jamie Dodd.